Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and uh, I feel like I'm setting myself up for something here, but uh, Eric, we've made it to uh, episode 69. (laughs) cool do do, is that does anybody younger than us actually understand what that is do do kids still know the beavis and butthead reference at all you know i'm not i'm my my kids uh, are not too familiar they know of them they've heard the names beavis and butthead but i don't i don't know that they have uh, really fully endured but uh for for people of my generation uh you know, the the yeah. uh, the the quick chuckle and maybe a you know that, that every, everyone knows that stuff. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, we grew up on it, which explains a lot, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it really, it really shaped my sense of humor to a disturbing <laughs> exactly. degree. Exactly. Oh dear. All right. Well, we've got some serious stuff to deal with this week on the podcast, as we are just around the corner from the first major pay-per-view fight of 2020: Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder two. So we'll preview that in full and we'll also be joined for part of that preview um by longtime friend of the podcast andy lee a distant relative and assistant trainer of fury he's going to give us the inside scoop on what's been happening in the fury camp so we've got to get all our stupidity out of our systems <laughs> by the time andy comes on the phone um we've also got quite a bit of outside of the ring news to cover this week and we'll get to that at the end of the pod but we start at the 2300 Arena in South Philadelphia, where Showbox came to your hometown, Eric, with a quadruple header. Indeed, Showbox came to Philly, and uh, fun fact, the 2300 Arena used to be known as ECW Arena. Yes, same building. <laughs> there you go. Uh, thankfully, nobody was power bombed through a table on Friday night. Uh, but Thomas Matisse's career suffered at least a mild power bomb uh, as he lost to Isaac Cruz by majority decision over 10 rounds. Scores were 95-95 and 96-94 twice, uh, including one 96-94 score from Steve Weisfeld, which lets you know that that is the correct score. Uh, <laughs> a good call by you, Karen. You predicted the mild upset win for Cruz. 2020 is shaping up as the year of Mulvaney in our picks competition. Uh, this was an interesting and entertaining fight a few different times. I thought one guy had taken charge for good and then the other fighter would get work done the next round and, uh, and the fight would be back up for grabs. Uh, Cruz had a huge seventh round, uh, putting Matisse on roller skates with a big right hand just before the bell. Matisse had an excellent 10th round, but it was a little too late. Uh, Kieran, did you agree with the final verdict? How did Cruz pull it off? And did Matisse at least do enough to stave off your last chance saloon talk? Uh, I did agree with the verdict. And and to sort of follow on from the point that you made there, it is always gratifying when your score matches Steve Weisfeld. There (laughs) is the smug self-satisfaction and relief that sort of courses through the system. It's great. Um, How did Cruz do it? I mean, so fundamentally, he did it by... You know, he was controlling the distance that the fight was fought at, which is really something a much taller fighter shouldn't be letting a much shorter fighter do. And he was doing that, you know, primarily by taking away Matisse's jab. And he did that by, you know, he was bobbing and weaving. He was he was already short. He was making himself even shorter and then sort of making that difficult for Matisse to reach him and then leaping in and and just unleashing combinations. Uh, I mentioned his body work last week when we previewed the fight and, and it was tremendous um i mean he was just tearing into matisse's body at times and and then also switching it up very nicely to the head but um but yeah you're right you know he certainly didn't have it all his own way i mean he started strongly 
the first couple rounds, maybe dropped the next two or three as Matisse sort of began to get together, rallied in the sixth, had that big seventh, and then it just... By the time the tenth came around, and Matisse had a strong, strong tenth, like he said, it felt like the fight had, had gotten away from him. Um, yeah, you know, in a strange way, the, the, how well Matisse did on that tenth round sort of adds to the sense of frustration about him. I think he's obviously mm. talented. He's never been blown away in a fight, but he's been on Showbox what is it six times now, and and certainly in none of the last five appearances has he clearly separated himself from his opponent or, or scored. Right even one clear and controversy free win. Um, so he's too good to throw on the trash heap, but by the same token, you know, Showbox is a series that's specifically geared toward testing young fighters and, and seeing if they have what it takes to move up to the next level. And, and he's had six shots at it and he, and he hasn't managed to take it up the next level. Um, you know, maybe this is what he is. Maybe he's a Showbox fighter, um, you know, and in which case maybe, you know, Gordon Hall decides to, keep him around and give him some more opportunities because he'll win some, he'll lose some, and he'll be, you know, he'll tell us as much about his opponents as they tell us about him, and he'll almost certainly be in close fights. But it just doesn't feel that he's ever going to graduate. Um, and the reason I say the 10th round is frustrating because that's how we should have been fighting in the previous nine rounds. <laughs> right. I mean, right. that's exactly, you know, when we were talking about it last week. We're like, this is how Matisse beats him. And so I, I just, I don't know. Uh, maybe... You know, I, I guess he has a bit of a choice to make, Matisse. He could keep doing what he's doing. Or maybe he just needs to go off TV for a bit, fight some off TV fights, get actually a string of controversy-free wins under his belt. Because right. he probably needs that psychologically as much as anything. Um, and, and maybe, well, learn just not give away the first three rounds of a fight <laughs> right. would be a start. Um, so I don't know. But as for Cruz, I want to see him again. I want yep. to see him again on Showbox. Uh, he was absolutely as advertised, wasn't he? He was all business. I don't think he smiled once. Um, all bobbing and weaving and fierce combinations. A little bit Tyson-esque, I think, as Raul Marquez referred to him as. And uh, I don't know how far he'll go, but it'll be fun to watch. So I certainly want to see Cruz again. Yeah, I'm certainly with you on that. I'll take him back in the ring against almost anyone. He's a fun fighter, and uh, and I'll, I'll stand by what uh, what I've been asking for with with Matisse that uh, I'd still take a, a rematch with Michael Dutchover. I think that would be a, a, yeah. a good option for him. But I also kind of like your idea of uh, take take the next uh, couple of fights off TV and just get some good solid dominant wins under your belt. Yeah. Uh, in the semi-final bout in the card, uh, we saw the only stoppage of the night as Adam Lopez, who's usually a tough out, was really dominated and, and bloodied by Reese, the beast Aleem, fight being stopped by uh, referee Gary Rosado at the request of the corner one minute and 31 seconds into round four. Uh, I, I was impressed with Aleem. I, I liked the control relentlessness of his soul. I thought it was a very mature performance. Um, I felt watching him as if this is a guy who I could easily see making the jump from Showbox to, you know, other other franchises, you know, to the special edition or even a championship boxing down the line. Um, he, he looked to me like he had a certain something about him, even if Lopez maybe, as, as I think, again, Raul mentioned, looked maybe as if this was one fight too many for him or he wasn't quite quite there. But it was also, I thought, as the guy said, a very well-timed and compassionate stoppage. Uh, were you as impressed with Aleem in his first nationally televised fight as I was? Yeah, yeah, I, I was indeed. Now, you know, you kind of need to see him against a, another guy, another style to get a sense right. of whether there was some degree of mirage here. But what we saw, he had extremely fast hands, good skills. This fight was never competitive. Uh, and although, yeah, the, the corner technically officially stopped it because of the blood gushing out of Lopez's nose, um, 
I think if he'd been more competitive and 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 shown more positive body yep. language, then yep. I don't think the blood would have been enough to stop it. It just kind of the exactly. bloody nose provided a good excuse to end yep. what was turning into a beatdown for Lopez. Uh, that he just didn't uh, seem seem to have the stomach for it. Um, the punch stats. I mean, 92 to 11 in landed punches, 61 to 7 in landed power punches. That that pretty much tells the story. Uh, every fight on this card was competitive except this one. So uh, yeah, I, I would certainly say Aliyev is a guy to watch, and he called out Brandon Figueroa afterward. That's uh, that's pretty bold. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the bout right before that one, junior welterweight Montana Too Pretty Love moved to 13-0-1 overall and 2-0-1 on Showbox. With an eight-round decision win over Jericho Walton, who has an incredible personal story, as you recounted last week, but was slightly outclassed here. And I thought the two scores of 77-75 were a little too close. The third score, 78-74, was more like it to me. Afterward, Love gave himself a grade of a C-plus and was disappointed that he failed to score a knockout. Kieran, would you give him a better grade than he gave himself? Um. So first of all, yeah, I think outclass is the right word, um, and I, I agree with you. He, he did just seem on a, a different level, really. Um, and I also scored it 78-74. Um, but it's difficult to know how to grade the performance because it's the first time I've seen Walton, and so it's hard to know whether he should or shouldn't have looked any better against him, you know. Right. So uh, I sort of came away with thinking that Walton isn't very good. You know, it was, it's not just that he was he didn't have the hand speed. Uh, of love uh, the combination he didn't seem to have the same ring iq like like love knew when he was in a situation what punches to throw and when to throw them walton didn't he, he, he even when he tried to make it an inside fight he didn't know how to fight inside and and you know and just ended up clinging on to him basically so um I, I i was starting to give him a couple of demerits love uh for the way he sort of allowed walton to Almost imposed himself a bit in the third and fourth, I think it was. But even then, he seemed pretty comfortable. Um, he looked like a pretty relaxed fighter in there. Um, never looked like he was very worried. Even He did do a slight wobble, but apart from that, he looked fine. He looks like he might have some legit skills. So he's another one I wouldn't mind seeing again to get a bit more of a sense of how good he actually is, uh, Montana Love. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I, I would love to see you try to pull off his uh, sartorial choices. I think you would look good in the in the pink with spikes uh, jacket. You know, I was gonna wear that just just to watch the uh, the, the fight, and I was glad I was I didn't because it's it's embarrassing when you right. crash with somebody on TV Certainly. like that. Yeah. So yeah. so I know that now. Um, the the opener was an interesting bout uh, between unbeaten 154 pounders, uh, the 20 year old Derek Coleman against 31 year old Joseph Jackson. And the scores were all over the place. Uh, 77-75, 78-74, and an 80-72 shutout, all for Jackson. Um, you know, I sort of mocked the fact that he hadn't fought outside of North Carolina before, and uh, he made me look pretty stupid. But um, Coleman did get off to a decent start, but Jackson took over a, a few rounds in. Um, which of the scorecards was, was closest to yours, and, and really what was the difference here for Jackson? Uh, so no surprise that I agreed with the Steve Weisfeld card, uh, 77-75, uh, but the 78-74 was just fine also. I didn't quite see how you could give Coleman zero rounds. I thought he started out well enough to win at least one or two of the first three. Uh, but the difference in the fight was Jackson's movement and his ability to identify what worked and what didn't. You know, he had his struggles the first three rounds, but once he started moving a little, and, and not a lot, just a little, just enough to get Coleman chasing him and, and off balance and 
clearly uncomfortable punching if his feet weren't set. Once he started fighting that way, he dominated. Uh, I, I didn't think the scoring of any of the rounds in the second half of the fight was up for debate at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Jackson's age and wisdom really showed in the fight. The The 20-year-old kid didn't know how to adjust. The 31-year-old man yeah. made an adjustment yeah. and recognized quickly that this is working. I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, so uh, impressive work from Jackson. Uh, but was it the most impressive work on the card? Uh, here's something fun we're going to start doing for Showbox cards. We'll each name a star of the show, or an MVP, basically. Uh, criteria somewhat unclear. There's some room for interpretation <laughs> here. Uh, but I'll go first, and I'll name Rice the Beast Aleem my star of the show. I said last week that on paper... Uh, it looked like a close matchup against Adam Lopez, but uh, in reality, it proved to be a mismatch. I can see a case for any of the other winners on the card, but I'm going with Aleem. How about you? Shockingly, <laughs> even as we introduce a new segment to try and shake things up, we still agree. Yeah, yeah. no, it, has, it is Aleem. Um, you know, he looks like he might be, you know, legitimately good. Uh, you know, yeah, like we said, we'd want to see him uh, against... Uh, somebody else but <clears throat> you can only beat the man in front of you and Aleem did so really impressively he as we said he was the only guy on the night to score a stoppage and, and of all the eight boxes we saw he's the one that I looked at and would probably write in the yearbook as most likely to succeed he just has there that feel about me you know what I mean so yeah. uh so yeah um yeah he's, he's got that certain something I think recently okay uh, in other action on Friday night, on a card streamed by DAZN from the Honda Center in Anaheim, Ryan Garcia continued his ascent and continued to make Kieran look smart for taking him in our Rising Stars draft last year, scoring a knockout-of-the-year contender with a left hook in the first round against Francisco Fonseca. And in the co-feature, Jorge Linares overcame a cut to knock Carlos Morales down in the third and down and out in the fourth. This sets up a Garcia Linares showdown, possibly next. Uh, two fights ago, I might have wondered whether Garcia was ready for that. Now I'm wondering the opposite. Is he too good for Linares at this point? Uh, <laughs> in short, I think I underestimated Garcia for a while, and I'm starting to believe now that we might have another Oscar De La Hoya on our hands, a, a pretty face who can back it up with real elite boxing abilities. Kieran, thoughts on either Garcia's or Linares's wins, and what's your level of excitement for that potential matchup if it comes next? Yeah, I think, like, almost out of nowhere, that's suddenly become a must-see fight, almost. Yeah. Um, a really terrific matchup. It's that real classic, experienced, dangerous, but vulnerable veteran against still not entirely proven, but massively exciting uh, young prospect slash contender. So, um, so my first instinct, my first thought, and perhaps even my second one, uh, was to, to absolutely agree with you that, that Garcia would enter that fight as a big favorite and that maybe Linares is a bit too shop-worn at this point. Um, and certainly, you, you know, we've seen several times now that Linares does have a, a wee bit of a chin issue and that could see him in really big trouble against him. But And it's not it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he could be another first-round victim for Garcia. He's been yeah. a first-round victim before. Right. Um, but the thing with Linares... Um, not only, as you and I have found, is he one of the absolute nicest guys in the sport. I mean, uh, you know, we've had a lovely conversation with him on a podcast before. Uh -huh. um, he's, uh, he's He remains really dangerous, as he showed, you know. He's got his vulnerabilities if you can tap him on the chin. But, man, those pair of right hands that dropped Morales in the third and, and, and fourth were, were terrific right hands. I mean, mm -hmm. you overlook him, even at this stage of his career, at your peril, I think. Um, but I think what most impressed me about Garcia is, 
yeah, and first round KOs can happen, right? And sometimes they don't tell you very much. But but this wasn't an accident. This wasn't a lucky punch. You know, Garcia had studied Taper Fonseca. He knew he could be baited into throwing a right hand and leaving himself exposed to a left hook. And, and that's just what he did. Um, so we don't have our buddy Redman Edwards with us this week, but he did tweet about the fight. Hmm. And he said, um, this is this is Breadman tweeting about, about it. I once read a story about Ali where his eyes were described as cat eyes. You could flinch inches from his face and he wouldn't blink. Watch the Garcia kid from last night. He shot that hook while his opponent was punching. Kept complete eye contact through entire sequence. Hashtag gifted. That's what right. our Breadman says. So there you go, you know. And it kind of feels, you know, with, with um, Ryan Garcia that it feels that since he's hooked up... Um, with the Renosos and with Canelo, like he's kind of gone up a level. That there's yeah. sort of a, a professionalism or something, a solidity about him now. That the, the promise is sort of morph, morphing into something. Uh, I, I think that might be proved to be the difference that takes him up another level. Yeah. So, all right, one other fight card to discuss on Saturday night on Fox. Uh, only one of the Caleb's fought. Uh, Truax's opponent fell out, uh, but Caleb Plant headlined in his hometown of Nashville. Uh, fine city, by the way, Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and dominated Vincent Feigenbutz until the fight was stopped in round 10, successfully defending his super middleweight belt in the process. Uh, but the fight on the card that really had people buzzing was Abel Ramos's stoppage win over Bryant Perella. Uh, referee Jack Reese... Uh, out of nowhere, Perella's winning this fight by a mile, gets dropped hard, and then uh, once and then twice. Um, Jack Reese, the referee, asking Perella, as referees often do these days, take a little walk and come back to me. And Perella took a little walk and he forgot to come back. <laughs> he might he might have made it all the way to Virginia by now if the fight hadn't been stopped. Um, and so Reese calling a halt. In the end, I think it was just one second was left on the clock. Uh, And Perella was way ahead on all three cards. So, well, quite a bit to talk about. So any thoughts either on on your buddy Caleb Plant's performance or indeed on that Ramos-Perella finish? Uh, There's not a lot to say about the Plant fight. Uh, He performed well, but it was kind of embarrassing that this fight was made. This was... Mm -hmm. Every bit as worthy of ridicule as Danny Garcia, Rod Salka, frankly, it just took a lot more rounds for Plant, uh, who's more boxer than puncher, to get it over with. Uh, There were just too many levels separating these two fighters. That is not the kind of product boxing needs reaching wide audiences on Fox. Uh, So on to the more interesting fight, Ramos-Perella. So yeah, Perella led by three points on one card and five on the other two. Uh, So even with a a 10-7 round, that would have evened it up on one card, but he was on his way to a majority decision win if Reese didn't stop the fight. Um, as with Chavez Taylor, which uh, everyone instantly yeah, yeah. compared this to, I can see both sides, and I agree with the take that the ref is not the timekeeper. If he believes a yeah. fighter is not fit to continue, his job is to stop the fight no matter how little time is left. But I wasn't crazy about the call here, and it really spotlights for me how stupid these relatively new instructions for a Mm -hmm. fighter when he gets up are. You remember in the old days, the ref says, walk to me. He observes how the fighter walks to him, looks in his eyes, looks at his legs, and makes the judgment call. They've made it entirely too complicated, especially yeah. when it's it's late in a dramatic fight and there's a little bit of a sense of chaos, as there was here. Yeah. Um, it's like some of those sob- sobriety tests. You know, walk heel to toe along the yellow line, stand on one foot, <laughs> recite the alphabet backwards. The average person will struggle a little bit, even if sober. Um, so Jack Reese said, 
go over there, then come right back here. And yeah, Perello's clearly hurt, but does the fact that he walks in one direction and then pauses before coming back mean that he can't defend himself and is a beaten man? Uh, I, I don't know. All this sort of go this way, go that way. Uh, even when the fight continues, it turns the 10-second recovery period into a 15- or 20-second recovery yeah. period, so I don't love that part. And I just don't know that it helps refs make better decisions. So I'm not saying Reese was was right or wrong here. I kind of lean toward feeling like Perella deserved better. Um, but the, the main thing is I could really do without the 12-step post-knockdown instructions flowchart. Uh, this is like bringing out my, my, my grumpy old man side. In my day, we didn't go that no. way and back this way. Took two steps forward, held our hand up, and we that liked as it. Far as, it's as far as we needed to go. That's right. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, it is yeah. weird, isn't it? It's like, it's like it felt like one or two commissions started. I feel like New York started it. And Might be, yeah. And and now it does appear to be coming more widespread. I, I don't know if it's if it's like an ABC thing now or, or what the deal is or whether it's up to individual referees. I, I'm not at all sure. But, yeah, it's a it's a thing. I, I mean, when I first saw it first, I actually, you know, what? I was talking to you guys on Ring Theory the first okay. time I saw it. I can't remember what fight we were talking about. But, yeah, I, I was quite struck by why why is the referee asking the guy to, like, jump up and down and hop and do, do all <laughs> right. this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, as long as we're on the subject of uh, close calls made by Jack Reese in the final round of a dramatic fight when the guy in the lead goes down, let's pivot Segway. to the big fight coming up, uh, nice. shall we? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, so after a run of six straight weeks of live boxing on Showtime, uh, the home network finally takes a weekend off, and there's really only one fight card that matters this coming weekend. It is at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on Saturday. And we will talk a bit about the undercard, but really there's only one fight that matters, the rematch. For a fair portion of the heavyweight championship, one alphabet belt on the line, arguably the lineal title on the line, the winner almost indisputably gets to call himself the top dog in the division. It's Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder 2. Uh, we all know what happened in their first fight, December 1st, 2018. It was Fury winning most of the rounds with his awkward boxing skills, but Wilder scoring a flash knockdown in the ninth, and the opposite of a flash knockdown in the 12th, Fury somehow getting up at the count of nine and a half from referee Jack Reese. And after 12 rounds, the judges calling it a draw, though a great majority had Fury ahead. Uh, each man has fought and won twice in the interim. So I'll ask you, Kieran, what has changed? And I I'll let you handle the Fury side. Give me one reason to believe he'll be better 15 months later and one reason to believe he'll be worse. That's a good question. Um, so I guess one reason to believe he may be better is that he's been more active in the, um, you know, prior to the first fight, he'd gone three years or so without being in the ring. He'd, he'd gotten massive. Um, and then neither of the two contests he had before facing Wilder was really a contest. Um, and yeah, okay, he's only had, you know, two subsequent outings, one of which was wholly uncompetitive and one which one was much more competitive than he would have liked. Um, but at least the point is that he's now boxing regularly. And, and, and for a guy like Fury, who sort of relies so much on rhythm and movement, that, that's probably important. So, you know, he's, he's got that that he didn't have with the first Wilder fight. Um, as for why it might be worse, um, well, you know, he's a unique opponent. He's a unique puzzle to solve. And, and Wilder struggled with that the first time around. But I don't think he, he probably won't have the benefit of surprise this time. And, and if an opponent... 
you know, solves his slipperiness and his elusiveness, what does he have? Um, so the question then, of course, is whether Wilder can solve that. And so I turn the question back to you, sir. <laughs> Give me one reason to believe that this time he will be able to do so, that with this time Wilder will be better in the rematch, and a reason to believe he'll be worse. All right. Uh, the reason to believe he'll be better is a kind of a two-pronged reason, but they're related. Uh, he's done nothing but get better his entire pro career, uh, mm. and he gets more and more confident in his power with each fight. And you could see that on display in his two fights since the Fury draw uh, against Dominic Brazil. He just knew the whole time, I'm going to find my opening and obliterate <laughs> yes. this guy. Uh, and yeah. against Luis Ortiz, some of us watching started to lose faith. You know, Wilder's losing every round. He's not doing anything. What's he waiting for? But Wilder clearly had a plan and uh, one right hand and it was over. So that's a reason to believe we'll, we'll get an even better Deontay Wilder this Saturday. Uh, as for a reason he'll be worse, uh, they're really isn't a compelling one except that he's in against Tyson Fury and if Fury's on his game he's a nightmare to catch up with and maybe Wilder's confidence in his power will backfire as he mm. might just give away too many rounds assuming that he's going to blast this guy out of there eventually um, I, I'd really like to see Wilder use the jab more and, and win some rounds yeah. in which he doesn't send the other guy to the canvas. Um, you know, he, he's maybe the biggest puncher in heavyweight history, as we've discussed, but he's still not a complete fighter. Um, it, it's interesting, just from an entertainment perspective, Wilder's really not an action fighter, but you're never bored because you're always yeah. on the edge of your seat yeah. waiting for something to happen, even when nothing yeah, is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you already noted uh, we, we don't have uh, Breadman here with this with us this week. Uh, we did get a tweet from him, though. Uh, and uh, even without Breadman, I want to talk uh, about the betting on this fight a little bit. Uh, the odds on who will win have moved slightly. It opened up right around even. Then Fury moved to a small favorite. I saw him as high as minus 140 and Wilder an underdog as high as about plus 120. But in the last couple of weeks, it's gone back to about even. Uh, some sports books have it dead even where you have to lay minus 110 on either fighter. I found one that still has Wilder as a plus 100 even money dog and, and Fury at minus 120. And I found another that sees Wilder as the tiny favorite minus 110, Fury at minus 106. There are other ways to bet the fight. Uh, the best I'm seeing on Wilder by knockout, technical knockout or disqualification is plus 150. I'm seeing Fury on points as high as plus 170. Fury by knockout as high as 5 to 1. Wilder by decision isn't the 12 to 1 anymore that we talked about with Brian Campbell a few weeks ago, but it's still 9 to 1. And then there's a repeat of the draw as high as 23 to 1 I'm seeing. Uh, Kieran, what do you make of the slight shift in favor of Wilder? And do any of those specific outcomes strike you as good value? Um, Wilder by KO at plus 150 doesn't seem too bad. No. Um, uh, that, that might be worth a little wager. I, I think that the 5-1 uh, for Fury by KO is terrible. You're going to need to give yep. me much better odds <laughs> than that for me to I put agree. down anything on that outcome. Um, also, Wilder by decision at nine to one. You know what? That could be an interesting one because we know that Deontay can knock Tyson down, but we also know that Tyson could get back up. So it's entirely right. possible that you know we could see you know both you know Wilder's power you know and and a decision. So you know, especially if as you were talking about, Wilder makes some of the necessary adjustments. So so I guess part of me is a tiny bit surprised that Wilder is nudging ahead as a favorite, partly because of how. Unimpressive, as you mentioned, he, he looked for the bulk of that Luis Ortiz rematch. But right. 
Um, but then again, like you said, you also knocked him out with one punch. Um, so I also suspect there's, there's a, the simple factor that, don't you think that uh, over the course of the week, probably as all the Brits arrive in Las Vegas, that's going to shift a bit again and Fury will yeah. wind up being the favorite again once they start putting their money down, I would guess. Yeah, that that so. could be if you, if you want to get uh if if you if you, if you want to bet Wilder but you want to want the odds to be as big as possible maybe you wait till the last second yeah mm, yeah all right I have one more topic to discuss about this um which is you know we've talked about it being the biggest fight of the weekend the biggest fight of the year so far well just how big is it um we did have a little bit of fun at Joe Tessitore's expense a few weeks ago when uh, we talked about him saying it would be the biggest pay per view ever. Uh, which would mean more than 4.6 million buys. Um, I bet you whatever happens, it'll be more exciting than the fight that did 4.6 million buys. But anyway, <laughs> um, but even if it doesn't set those records, uh, so how big do we think this is? Because this is a bit of a, it's quite the unique situation. Um, you know, it, it was advertised during the Super Bowl. Fox and ESPN are coming together. It's, it's, does it feel like this is capitalized big event and that these guys are almost household names in, in the U.S.? that's you know half the battle with with any boxer uh, ever since the sport moved away from the mainstream in the US and more toward being a, a cult sport or a niche sport uh, you know th- there's a real challenge to build any boxer into having a mainstream name and uh, I long ago proposed the theory that one of the benefits of fighting on pay-per-view perhaps before you're really ready to be a pay-per-view attraction is to plant the idea in people's heads mm. that you're a pay-per-view fighter. So, you know, Fury Wilder 1 was not a failure on pay-per-view, but it was not a hugely successful pay-per-view, but it set them on the path to the rematch being right. much bigger and yeah, having an ad during the Super Bowl and continuing ads during XFL games and all this extra coverage on ESPN and Fox and so forth. Look, are they household names? Yeah, not not quite, not totally. Like I think if you ask the average person on the street to name one of the two heavyweights fighting this weekend, I think you're still under 50% to mm-hmm. get a correct answer. Yeah. But all this mainstream coverage and promotion is working in terms of making the fight feel like an event. Uh, yeah. you, you remember how uniquely huge Mayweather Pacquiao was. I knew people who never ordered a fight in their lives, who ordered that one because they felt like they were going to be left out of the conversation otherwise. It was the center of the universe. Uh, we are not close to that with, with Wilder Fury 2. We're not even halfway to that. I'm not sure we're a quarter of the way to that. But... Mm. I suspect some people who've never ordered a fight before are at least thinking about it with this one. It's getting that kind of mainstream coverage and promotion where I think it is crossing over to, to some degree, much more than most fights do. Um, mm. and, and by the way, a quick note related to this ESPN Fox co-broadcast. I assume you saw the tweet last week announcing their giant 12-person yeah. <laughs> broadcast crew. To them, yeah. that was a selling point. To me, it's a turnoff, and not because I dislike the people involved, although eh, there might be two or three of them I don't enjoy listening to, but I'm a fan of most of them, Um, but rather because they're announcing to us that they are going to drag this show the hell out. (laughs) We're going to have the ringside team and at least two other desks, and before each of the four fights on the card, we're going to have to hear from everyone at every desk, uh, which can be helpful if you get quick knockouts in every undercard fight and you need to fill time, but otherwise... It kills the show. There, there's no flow. You know, fans just want to get on to the next fight. Uh, 
I almost want to watch this show Sunday morning and be able to fast forward a lot. I, I won't uh, because of uh, the intrigue in the main event, but I predict somewhat of a production shit show here, uh, but we shall see. Um, yes. I noted at the the top of the segment that there's really only one fight on this card that matters, uh, which was my way of saying the undercard is very disappointing. I do love me some Emmanuel Navarrete, uh, but I can't say I'm expecting much from his fight with unproven Filipino challenger Geo Santissima. Uh, we also have freakishly tall Showbox alum Sebastian Fundora taking on Daniel Lewis, with whom I am entirely unfamiliar. And we have a 12-round heavyweight fight between Charles Martin and Gerald Washington, to which I say simply... Wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kieran, I give this undercard a grade of a D on paper. Maybe I can be talked into a D plus. Uh, am I being too harsh? Uh, is there anything you're excited for here? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of the same as yours in that you in that if I'm going to look for a bright spot, it's seeing Navarrete. Um, and I like Fandora. We both enjoyed him when he was on Showbox. Um, but Martin Washington really brings it down, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, goodness me. I, I, is that the opener? Um, I'm not sure I, what the planned order of fights is. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they figure like early on, nobody's going to be paying much attention. Everyone's going to be getting their beer and nachos and pizza and whatever, but yeesh. Yeah, no, it's not exactly revenge the rematches, is it? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know... I have I have thoughts on this, and and, and you know Bob Arum always used to to poo poo the notion of stacking pay per view cards because he was he, his argument was always that people are just buying it for the main event and it's pointless spending money on the undercard and um, but boy it just feels like this is a massive missed opportunity here but as you said you know there are quite possibly people who would not normally ever buy a boxing pay per view perhaps might not even watch boxing. Who are going to get this pay-per-view and surely what you want to do is showcase your best fighters in exciting fights to, to, to follow on from your very point from earlier so that as well as the main event they're going to say god i really like that guy i want to see him again um you know and 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 maybe they'll even say hey i didn't know that boxing could be so great i'm gonna watch more boxing it just feels like this this is the opportunity to do that and it yeah oh it just feels like that's a I missed the, no disrespect to any of the fighters on the undercard um but that just feels like a really missed opportunity so yep Anyway, to talk to us a little bit more about that main event, and particularly about one of the participants, we welcome back to the podcast uh, one of our very good friends, uh, someone who's always had time for us, no matter which network we're repping at the time, uh, former middleweight titleist, and now part of the team training Tyson Fury for Saturday's rematch, the one and only Andy Lee. Uh, Andy, welcome back, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Um, So... I was reading an interesting story this this past week in one of the the English papers. You know, and it's Tyson saying, you know, that he feels like he's almost suicidal on Sundays when you're not training. And 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 I remember reading an article in, in Boxing News a few years back in which one of his team members was basically saying, you know what, you don't want to be around Tyson when he's not fighting, when he's not training for a fight. And and. You know, it seems really clear that like the focus and the physical exertion that training and fighting brings is, is, a, is a real release for him. And, and obviously you've known him a long time. Um, so would you sort of endorse that from what you know of him, that he's quite a different fellow when he's training and, and when he's out of competition? Yeah, I think so. like Tyson's been very open about um, his mental health issues. Mm. And he said to me on some occasions that he has to go to the gym every day. 
um, it's the key to him staying healthy and uh, having peace of mind. He's going to the gym every day and working out. Mm. So I think he's found that kind of balance now. Hopefully he has. That even when he's not in training for a fight, he'll go to the gym. Ah. Or he'll go for a run. He'll do something, you know. Um, but Sundays are always hot. Even, even when I box. Um, because you're away from home, you're away from your family, and being here on the west coast is a huge time difference mm-hmm. in the UK. So they're usually going to sleep mid morning, and so um, you have to find things to occupy yourself. Um, but we're, we're actually going to going to church this morning, mm-hmm. um, so that'll be our Sunday busy. <laughs> but uh, he's like a, he has been very open about his mental health, and I think he's an inspiration to a lot of people yeah um i know he receives plenty of messages about you know, with him being able to open up and talk someone who i think has it all been the heavy was the heavyweight champion of the world and suffered from great depression um mm. and being you know someone who you think would be an alpha male and tough and, right. strong and you know the fact that he can open up and talk about his problems has helped a lot of other people too yeah, no question. Yeah, and, and he certainly turned a corner the, over the last two years or so in terms of staying busier, not not taking a lot of time off between fights. He's kept a busy schedule. And I, I'm curious for your thoughts on his most recent fight, the, the Otto Wallin fight. As an outside observer who wasn't in the corner with Tyson yet, did you see that as an off night for Tyson or actually as something to be proud of because he overcame that, that terrible cut and still won? And, and regarding the cut, is, is there any concern in sparring about it? And do you expect Wilder to target it at all? He may target it. Um, but so far in sparring and in training, there's been no issue with it. He's okay. sparred. I, I don't need countless rounds. There's been a lot of boxing sparring in this, this camp. You know, um, I'm not sure what he's pre. I can't nothing to prepare his previous camps, with, but like he was regularly mm-hmm. about four days a week um, throughout this camp. Um, and I looked back at the violent fight. I I think it was good. I think it was a good performance because he had to make an adjustment, mm-hmm. and yeah, he was going on to boxing where maybe win a typical Tyson fight, but then he got the with a horrendous cut, and he had to change his style. And to be able to do that mid fight. It's a real asset and a real ability, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I I don't look at it as a bad performance. Valen is a very tough man, very very tough man, and we'll probably show how good he is in these next few fights. Mm. Um, but I think Tyson did well in that fight. Mm. Um, we saw with Andy Ruiz a, a couple of months ago, you know, putting on 15 pounds before a big heavyweight title rematch can have a negative effect. Now, I've seen some photographs of Tyson. He looks like he's in pretty good shape, but um, he weighed 256 and a half pounds for the first Wilder fight. And he's been talking about wanting to come in at over 270. He's not really going to try and come in over 270 on Saturday, is he? I'm just going to be in about 165. Maybe 163, maybe 166. So somewhere like that. He, he's got George Lockhart here doing his nutrition uh, cooking for him. And um, we've all been really impressed with George and the stuff that he's doing and the depth of knowledge he has. Uh, Tyson's eating five times a day, sometimes six, mm. and drinking more water than I think he's ever drank. And like for this camp, Tyson has left no stone unturned. I know it might it might seem I don't know it might sound silly, but 
a lot of great fighters, they don't do that. You know, they, they have themselves little, little uh, mercies, like uh, like little treats here, or right. sweet or can of Coke, or something like that. Some little, you know, I've done well today, so I'm going to have a treat. Tyson has not had one, one sweet, one bar of chocolate, one. He's done everything we could ask of him. He slept well. He hasn't been, he hasn't done anything outside of the gym. He's gone to the gym and back to the house, and he's trained and performed in the gym. He's trained in the gym with like a real seriousness and a dedication and a focus that that me coming into the camp I was really not surprised but taken aback by. Just to see how determined he is and how much he meant this fight really means to him. I, that that surprised him obviously, but um, how much he's willing to learn and how hard he wants to train. Mm. It shows that, you know, not all pounds are the same, right? You can be 250 pounds and fat or 266 exactly. pounds yeah. and, and in good shape, right? Yeah. Look, he's, he's carrying it well in training. He's, he's mm. managing well in sparring. Uh, he, he thinks he was, well, for the next, but like, it's he's right for the first while fight. It's difficult to gauge because he's coming back from that, like, 28 stones, whatever that is. Right, pounds, you know, right. Like, <laughs> He was coming down from that. There was only six months previously. He blew up, blew up to that horrendous weight. So it's kind of hard to gauge. Mm. Um, but there is there is a lot of positives being taken that from the first while the fight in that aspect. With that he'd only come back had two kind of not meaningless, but not really not really great fights. Right. Um, in his two comeback fights, six months after being that weight, and then fought Wilder. And look what happened. This time he's had uh, two fights in between, two really competitive fights, and two full-on training camps. He's kept himself healthy. Now he's brought him to the hill, and he's added a lot of, like, I, I don't want to say too much because there's so much you can say, but he's added a lot to his game. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, whatever he weighs and whatever kind of shape you're in, uh there's no magic formula for being able to prepare for someone with Wilder's freak power. Uh, I mean, now you were always a guy who was uh, dangerous. Even if you fell behind a few rounds, uh, you could come back and knock a guy out, did it a few times. But I'm sure I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like Wilder in that regard. So I'm curious how much energy in camp is focused on figuring out how to get through 12 rounds without getting hit cleanly by this guy. Um, you want to get hit. In a fight, you know, it's very hard to go 12 rounds and not get touched with anything. But right. Tyson has to, you know, Tyson's, again, we go back to the first fight, coming back after such a long layoff. It was very hard for him to maintain his concentration levels for those 36 minutes of the fight. Um, but having the two previous camps behind him, the two previous fights, and this one will help him with that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things, you know, as well as you're training your body, you're training your mind and to maintain those concentration levels at all times. And if you look at the two knockdowns of Wilder, they happened when Tyson wasn't looking at, they happened when Tyson wasn't actually, didn't actually have his eyes on Wilder. He actually had his head turned away. The first one, he was ducking, got caught on the ropes, was ducking low, kind of got stuck down there and turned his head, actually was looking down at the ground when he got hit in the back of the head. Mm. So that can happen to anyone. The second one, was when when Tyson had his back to the ropes in the first fight, he was very defensively switched on, very defensive minded, and he was alert. But when he got to the center of the ring, he was a bit more casual. 
And the second lockdown, you can see he, he gets off the ropes, spins off the ropes, gets to the center of the ring, kind of just has that little moment of relaxation, laughs and concentration, and boom, Wilder hits him. But again, Tyson was ducking low, turned away for his head, and got hit kind of on the neck with the right hand, mm. back of the head. So um, Tyson has to keep his eyes on him at all times. Mm. It's just, I know it sounds very simple, but that's what he has to do. He has to keep his eyes on him at all times. Um, because even if Tyson's reaction is a little bit slow, so constantly his brain will react and it will make an adjustment. Um, but we're also putting in some practical... No, we're not just relying on that. <laughs> we're putting in some practical um, methods of, of defending against the right hand too by keeping a, a strong left arm out there, protecting his chin. Um, also... Also, we're taking the distance from Wilder. Like it's, it is a different. It's 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 going to be a tremendously hard fight because mm. Wilder's a great champion. You might say he's just a right. He just lands that right hand, but look, he's been doing it over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't. You can't. You know. You can't knock him. So yeah. we're under no illusion of how tough the fight is, but we believe we like the better man, the trained, the better skilled all-round fighter. Like Tyson's amazing. Like he's an amazing bot fighter. When you see what he can do in the gym, you know middleweights can't do what he he mm. does. Like I couldn't do some of the things he does. And here he is, a man of six nine, like, with that frame, and he's just so coordinated and doing this, these things with, with, and just the ability and the, the imagination to do it as well. Yeah, he's a total freak, really. I mean, there's nobody at all like him in, as a heavyweight for sure. No, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so look you're also as you mentioned to us last time we had you on the podcast you're working also with uh, up and coming prospect Paddy Donovan and, and since we talked to you you're now also working with Jason Quigley and and how different is it going from training guys on that kind of level guys who are still learning you know Jason obviously at a different stage from Paddy but still working their way up to working with the lineal heavyweight champion of the world as he prepares for the biggest fight of the year is, it, does it feel like two entirely different worlds or is you know training training it's a different world in, in the fact that we're here in Las Vegas, we're, we're in lovely accommodation, uh, we're getting driven everywhere. You know, the flight's going to be on a, at the big, highest level, but in terms of what we do in the gym, it's the exact same stuff. Um, I, I don't know. But, like, I'm not the head coach, and, and I think that kind of suits me, Sugar Hill is the head coach, because I want, want to find my feet, but also have, feel like you have some authority you know, uh, because we're Paddy and Jason, I can tell him run up the, I can tell him run up a hill and run down a hill and run up a hill. I can tell him do it fifty times, and they'll have to do it because I have the authority. But when you don't run into a camp with Tyson Fury, who is now a lineal heavyweight champion, and we've never worked together before, you're always kind of gauging where we're at. But I have to admit, um, he's listened to everything I said, and and it's great validation for me. And kind of, uh, I got like. I'm kind of chuffed that, hey, here's this guy who's achieved so much um, and is such a great fighter and such a great boxer mind himself and he wants to hear what my opinion, he wants to hear what I say and, and when I tell him stuff, he actually takes it on board and, and it has, yeah, has a benefit to him. So, um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be in this position now and um, hopefully it'll bear good results. 
Yeah, and so so you're 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 not the head trainer. Uh, you told us last time you were on the podcast that you hadn't really even been planning to become a trainer. Uh, you know, you retired from boxing, you started a family, and then the opportunity to start working with fighters just kind of came about organically. And and here you are now. Do you see yourself doing this long term? Are are we looking at potentially another Freddie Roach or Buddy McGirt, where this is just what you're going to be doing professionally for the next twenty or thirty years? To be honest with you, I've, like you said, I'm training two young fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't earned a penny out of it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I unless I start making some books, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I to see, but, uh, my wife's very understanding. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just um, I'm just trying, you know, it's just a pastime at the moment. Okay. Um, coming in here with Tyson Fury, it's it's a privilege and it's, it's not, a, and I think to say like, like you know, if you look back through history and you see all these great champions and even great, you know, like Elvis Presley or Rockstar, and you think, what would I have given to be there with them at that mm-hmm. moment, or what would I do? What would I say? And and here, and potentially, I'm here with a guy like Tyson Fury, who I believe will be one of the greatest champions of all time, and I believe is a special person. Um. And I've got to be around him. So, look, I'm very happy where I am. And who knows where it'll go with this, this coaching thing. But, look, look, I'm committed to Paddy. Um, I've signed him to a long-term managing contract. So, whatever happens, I'll be helping him. Mm. And he's a, he is a phenomenal talent, Paddy. He's fighting. He's 3-0 now. He's fighting on the March 17th card in the garden. And Mike Cummins on the card. He's out here with us at the moment, so he's out here to get some experience and learn from Tyson, train with Tyson. So um, he did some sparring last week in the top round gym, and we'll spar again next week. So he's one to keep an eye out for all the boxing fans. Keep an eye out for Paddy Donovan. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, well, whatever you do, as long as you have spare, enough spare time to come and join us on the podcast from time to time, that's all that matters yeah, to us. My phone, <laughs> my phone's always ready. <laughs> Cheers, lad. Thanks for the Cheers. call. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. All right. We've previewed the fight. We've gotten Andy's insights. Uh, It's time now to make our picks. These are unofficial, though. They don't count toward the totals in our competition, which, by the way, Kieran now leads 21 to 17. Uh, And since it's unofficial, it doesn't matter much who goes first. So uh, what the hell? I'll lead off. Uh, anyone who tells you they have real confidence about what's going to happen here is full of crap. Uh, This is close to even money for a reason. You know, one guy might well win in one-sided fashion, but good luck guessing which guy that'll be. Um, I'm kind of going along with the way in which the wind is blowing for my pick, and then the wind is blowing maybe a bit away from Fury. I probably would have picked Fury a year ago if they'd done the immediate rematch, Um, but... I don't love that he's changed trainers and certainly nothing against Andy and Sugar Hill Stewart. Just the first fight with a new trainer is a bit of a dice roll. And it Mm. seemed from the outside, like, like Tyson and Ben Davison had a good thing going. Uh, Also clearly Fury is is better light and in shape. So we don't know what he's going to weigh in. And he says mid two sixties maybe, but I don't love even hearing the 270 pound talk. So I'm not sure. Um, this is kind of the fight that would be a slightly easier pick to make after the weigh-in, but uh, we don't have that luxury. Right. Um, if Fury is for any reason not at his absolute best, we know the damage that Wilder can do. I think it's a little more likely than not that Fury can't avoid getting hit flush for all 36 minutes. I am picking Deontay Wilder by KO in round nine. How about you, Karen? <laughs> 
Uh-oh, not, that... quite com- that... not quite complete agreement. Okay, uh, all right. I thought maybe that laugh meant it complete agreement. Okay. Yeah, look, it is hard. It's it's very hard. You can, you can game all kinds of scenarios in your head. Um, you know, Fury is such a tough nut to crack, but as we keep saying, Wilder has that great equalizer. Um, you know, Wilder can't let himself... You know, you talked about how much confidence he has in, in, in his one-punch power, and they showed that against Luis Ortiz on the rematch. He can't dig himself into that big of a hole as he did, uh, point-wise, as he did against Ortiz, because there's no guarantee he will get Fury out of there, however much he thinks he will. Um, I, I think Deontay Wilder's got to target Fury's body, because that upper body and head is going to be moving all over the place. And, and Wilder had... You know, he connected with it a couple of times, of course, but it's just expended a lot of energy just trying to catch catch him. He's so right. good and freakish uh, uh, defensively. Um, so I think if he can sort of fight within himself a little bit, and I think that's what he was probably training himself to do with the Ortiz rematch. Right. Um, do that George Foreman jab to the chest. He needs to be doing that against a guy like Tyson Fury all the time. And then, hope, and then perhaps he'll be able to slow him down enough um, that even though it's going to be very, very even on the cards, because it's still going to be very difficult, he might have the opportunity to drop the hammer. And I have in my notes here that he's going to possibly do that in round 10. So poo to your round nine. <laughs> but I will also say, do you remember how we would sometimes do those Media Row podcasts and like a Freddie Roach fighter would be in one of the fights and we'd be picking against the Freddie Roach fighter and then Freddie Roach would come on the podcast and we'd be like, holy crap, I'm going with the Freddie Roach fighter. Freddie's <laughs> right. convinced me. Right. I almost feel a bit like that after talking to Andy. Hmm. Um, as he was talking about some of the things that they're doing and, and, and Tyson's dedication, I was beginning to think, oh, maybe I'm underselling this guy. But nope, right. I have made my notes. Okay. And I'm sticking to it. All right. Okay. Um, it has been an extremely busy news week. Lots to cover. We'll try and get through it um, relatively swiftly. Uh, we will start with the latest Canelo sweepstakes, always a popular and regular feature <laughs> on the podcast. Um, we went through this last fall with weekly updates on his potential opponents. And now here we are again uh, with it taking a while to find an opponent for May 2nd. The big news this week is Callum Smith reportedly declining an initial offer, amount unknown to us, and Oscar De La Hoya calling him an idiot. <laughs> As if Oscar still has any say in what Canelo does. Um, <laughs> Riero Morata is apparently out, to my chagrin. Uh, so it's seemingly Smith and Billy Joe Saunders now the leading candidate. So you had a guess a few weeks ago as to where this is headed. It seems to be heading in your direction. Uh, any further guesses? Well, the, the clock is ticking uh, as we are now into mid-February. I suspect Smith and Saunders both want the fight, uh, but their people maybe believe that they can negotiate and get a little more because Canelo doesn't want to do what he did last time, which is not find an opponent in time and have to move off the date that he had in mind. Um, I'll guess it's going to be Saunders. He's a little bit better known in the U.S. Uh, but uh, most importantly here, let's just uh, let me give myself a quick pat on the back for telling everyone a few <laughs> weeks ago that it wouldn't be Murata. And I, I don't know if my reasoning was correct, uh, but my general instinct was dialed in. So I'm, I'm taking some credit there. Um, <laughs> and as long as I'm patting myself on the back, I, I'm now going to take full credit for my angry rant on the podcast being what convinced the New York State Athletic Commission to scale back its punishment of Ivan Redkoch for biting Danny Garcia, uh, right in line with uh, what the two of us said was appropriate. The $10,000 fine stands, the suspension goes from 12 months down to six, and they're no longer trying to take his purse. Kieran, uh, this is all us, right? Oh, 100%. Um, there are few in this business, brave or foolish enough to incur the wrath of Raskin and Mulvaney, the righteous 
wrath, yes. I should say. Uh, but yeah, like this was clearly a massive overreaction. Um, so good to see there's some kind of correction. And yeah, fine's fine. The fine is perfectly fine. Well, fine. Um, <laughs> That's why they call it a fine. They're fine, indeed so. Uh, a couple of signings to report. Featherweight Josh Warrington has parted ways with Frank Warren, signed a promotional deal with Eddie Hearn. Um, and oh, I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but anyway, here we go. Uh, Manny Pacquiao, though still promoted by PBC, has signed with Paradigm Sports Management. Who is Paradigm Sports Management, I hear you ask? Why, they're the agency that represents Conor McGregor. Oh, let's put two and two together and come up with 26, shall we? Should we talk about start talking about Pacquiao versus McGregor now? Um, let me think about it. No. Uh, moving right <laughs> along. Following up on some stories we've been tracking, uh, Alejandra Jimenez, following her failed drug test, has had her win over Franchon Cruz Desern officially turned into a no decision. And Artis Mack, the brother of Clarissa Shields, has reached a plea deal in connection with his weigh-in attack on James Ali Bashir in October. He pled guilty down to a single count of misdemeanor aggravated assault, for which he can receive a maximum sentence of one year in prison. Uh, also, Boxing News reported this week that Sergio Martinez, about to turn 45, is scheduled to return to the ring on June 7th. What's your level of dread on that one, Kieran? Uh, through the roof, I'm afraid. I mean, unless he's got bionic knees since we last saw him. I mean, he was basically immobile when he retired. Um, I mean, there's no harm in losing to Miguel Cotto. There's no harm in losing to Miguel Cotto by knockout. There's no shame in that, I should say. But you you do give yourself a better shot if you can at least move a few inches to either side. I mean, honestly, Jack Reese could do the walk over here and come back to me (laughs) thing. And Sergio couldn't do that before he'd been hit. (laughs) Right. So, uh, so I can't imagine that that situation has improved. It's weird because he's always struck me as a pretty smart guy, but that just goes to show, man, boxers have a very hard time not boxing. Yep. Um, continuing on the negative news track, uh, former heavyweight, this is sad news, former heavyweight contender Jimmy Thunder died at just 54 years of age on Wednesday uh, due to complications from a brain tumor. Um, Thunder, of course, a real staple of the late lamented Tuesday night fights. Uh, best recalled for his 13-second knockout of Crawford Grimsley, which would have been three seconds if the referee hadn't bothered to count <laughs> over Grimsley's twitching body. Um, uh, alas, uh, Thunder reportedly ran in- into hard times lately, uh, including a spell living rough in Las Vegas at one point. Um, Eric, any particular memories of uh, Jimmy Thunder? Well, you, you named uh, the-, the first thing that comes to mind is, is that Ding boom knockout of Crawford Grimsley on USA <laughs> Tuesday night it. fights. That was the actual yeah. soundtrack of the fight. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I didn't really cover his career. He was getting close to the end by the time I joined the boxing beat, but he was a very heavy puncher. Uh, just a, a good, solid, if one dimensional heavyweight. Uh, he never fought for a title but he fought plenty of past and future heavyweight belt holders. He beat Tony Tubbs. He beat Trevor Burbick. He beat Tim Witherspoon. He lost to Chris Bird and to John Ruiz. Solid fighter. Uh, very sad to hear of him dying this young. Uh, but let's end on a more positive note. The excellent Jose Ramirez-Victor Postal fight, uh, postponed recently due to the coronavirus outbreak, is now scheduled for May 9th in Fresno, California. Now, I made a small bet on Postal at plus 430 odds before the original fight date. I thought there was value there. Have I lost all my value with the fight now taking place in Ramirez's backyard? 
Uh, plus four thirty. I don't think so. I think that's okay. still pretty good odds. Okay. I mean, you've got to you favor Ramirez, right? But Postol. Right. I mean, he looked pretty good in his two outings since since he fought Josh Taylor, and and he's the thing is he's got that experience and guile and toughness to at least keep it close. And if he can keep it close, who knows what can happen? Yeah, four thirty seems all right to me. All right. I feel I feel much better about my investment now. Do you though? No, not really. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Join us next week when after a single week off from live boxing on Showtime, we will have another Showbox card to preview. And, of course, we will analyze the outcome of Fury Wilder 2 and its potential aftershocks. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>